Hello and welcome to the MISEM podcast. This is the podcast in which we talk to MISEM members about their recent or ongoing research. I'm Karen Culver, and in this special MISEM podcast, I have the pleasure to talk to Nada Zechevich and Daniel Zeman, who are joint editors of the newly published Oxford Handbook of Medieval Central Europe. This podcast is the story of that book from its inception to its publication. I have the pleasure today to be in Vienna with Daniel, working in the CEU campus in the most wonderful studio here, while Nada is connecting to us from her research point in Croatia. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you, Karen. Nada took an MA and then a PhD from Central European University Budapest, ending in 2004. She now teaches history of the Balkans at Goldsmiths University of London, where she is also the director of the Centre for Study of the Balkans. Nada's research focus is medieval and early modern Balkans and its global connections, as well as modern interpretations of the region's past. Nada loves travelling and exploring, mixing cultures, reading a good book by the sea and cooking historical dishes for friends and family. Daniel took an MA in Medieval and Modern History and then a PhD at the University of Frankfurt in 2002. He's now a research assistant at University of Cologne and an associate professor at the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University. When I was a student just a few years ago at Central European University, he was one of my tutors and a great fun course it was. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, it was really a great course. And I remember, of course, your contribution as well. I think my contribution was on forgetting in a course <laughs> on memory and forgetting. <laughs> um, but tell me, the book, The Oxford Handbook of Medieval Central Europe, I know it's been some years in the creation, but I was wondering how it got started and where did the original concept for the handbook come from? The, the initial idea about this handbook appeared a long time ago. It was in 2014 at the first gathering of Method that took place in Budapest. We had a rounded debate coming from the members who actually wanted to have the history of the region but not in a way that glorifies its past, rather in, in a way that actually reflects upon the debate, upon unanswered questions as well. And this is how it all started. But it took several years to get its shape towards the addition. But what's most important, and this is at least what will stay in my memory of, of this whole project, is that it actually involves the input of so many members of the method that I really cannot consider it just my and Daniel's project, but really the project of the much larger group of people. The central event when this big group of people decided about it was in Olomouc at the second biennial conference of method in 2016. And it was quite informal. Um, it was really a sort of exchange of opinions and ideas rather than sitting and creating a project. Um, then, of course, it took us several years to put this all in shape needed for publication. 
finally, during the COVID pandemic, we were able to close it down and send it to the publisher. So appearing just now, this October in print version. What can be added is that many of our colleagues uh, at CEU were dealing for quite a long time with this region already, uh, with the medieval past of Central Europe. And there was the need to take stock of uh, what has been done concerning the development of research on the region and to combine it and to make it available also for a broader public. The idea was, of course, that uh, those who are not so familiar with this region, coming from, from anywhere uh, in the world, could access the research, the scholarship on this region and consider this region as a part of the medieval past in Europe. Yeah. I think it came out also uh, from the idea that it might have been a forgotten region. And this was the title of the very first Mitzan conference yeah, with a question mark. So if we answer the question with no, then uh, the handbook was maybe one of the means to, to change this image. And I suppose that really takes me on to my next question of the book, which is sitting in front of us, has over 20 chapters, approximately 50 contributing writers. So how did you two approach this editorial task? What were the main challenges and what were the main joys of doing it as well? Yeah, I start with the joys because maybe that's uh, something that uh, will stay, I think, also in our memory. Um, the joy is certainly reading the chapters and reading the output of the work of many years of the authors. And um, there are so many new things that I have never heard about. And reading the chapters um, and also reading about what has been done which scholars have been working on it, what kind of publications are available. This was certainly a joy. And it's really a handbook in its best sense. So you can consult it just for looking up something that you would like to know. But of course, I mean, there are also challenges. And that's certainly um, the communication with the authors because each author has a different type of how he or she works and some respond immediately some responses come with a certain delay sometimes there are no responses at all um, also the style and the language of the chapters are quite heterogeneous so it was uh, then the task to harmonize them the length there were certain Restrictions concerning the length. Some authors tend to write more and then you have to somehow reduce it. And of course, the sheer number of authors is, uh, is a challenge. A lot of authors and you have to communicate it. But I'm, I, I guess that Nada can tell much more about this process. Yeah, well, I would definitely agree with Daniel that the joy of learning was really the peak of, of working on, on this volume. 
And I would also add communication because it was challenging with dealing with so many authors of so many different styles and languages and research cultures. But at the same time, it was really a joy learning about those people as writers. Now, in terms of organization of our work, this is a very unusual uh, volume because we allowed authors the freedom to choose how they were going to structure their chapters and how they were going to structure their authorship. So in some chapters, we had one chapter, one author. That's pretty conventional. But in some chapters, we had, for instance, more than two authors and their responsibilities on chapter were not equal. So we had situations when some people would simply gather information and give it to their colleagues to process it. Some people would take part in the analysis, but they were not authors. This diversity went towards age and experience of scholars. So our real aim was to mix scholars of senior positions with junior scholars And usually one would imagine that it's senior scholars who do all this main work, but there were situations when this was different. So senior scholars would be just adding some information, whereas junior scholars would carry the the entire chapter. One of most difficult challenges was the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, namely because our authors were not able to reach their Uh, primary sources and literature that's kept in various libraries, archives, collections all over Europe, or some of them were not able to reach even their offices. But COVID brought us Zoom. So this is... And finally, I would also add, in terms of challenges, it's actually the loss of our colleagues. We lost um, one of our spiritual moments And this was Professor Janusz Bach in June 2020. Just recently, we also lost our dear colleague Stefan Donecker, who is the contributor of Chapter on Migrations. Um, there were several colleagues whom we lost due to sickness. So we had to find urgent replacements. That's not so easy when, when you need specialized fields. So it was a kind of solidary collaboration, definitely. Nadi, you mentioned that it was actively requested that it should be a mixture of senior scholars, the well-known names, and new people coming through. Now, I would have assumed that a handbook to have all the big, solid names there would be a more sellable product. What do you think were the advantages of bringing in newer, younger scholars? Uh, Well, clearly new ideas. New ideas in terms of opening up new postmodern questions that have rarely been tackled in in the past, but also some new issues coming out of technologies like social media, how we gather sources through social media. So definitely those innovations were something that we clearly benefited from from this younger generation. And after all, it's actually this generation that will carry on with the research and is taking over the research in their own way. So why not allowing them as of now? We may add that 
from the big names, which are important, which have left their imprint on scholarship, you more or less in the best sense of the word know what you get. Yeah, So it's absolutely high quality scholarship, but it's without surprises. And um, this is certainly something that you get from, from younger scholars. Perspectives which you don't expect, a point of view which is maybe not usual. So just concerning this region, I, I would say that some of the authors are still embedded in this national historiography uh, within a very national context of scholarship, um, which is still high-quality scholarship, but it's, it's not a transnational one. Um, the same is true sometimes for the disciplines, yeah, which tend sometimes to be separated from each other. And I think that the youngest generation is more used to transgressing national boundaries concerning the scholarship, as well as looking at other disciplines and how they work from a methodological point of view. So this is certainly something that you can get by also contacting uh, younger scholars and, and asking them to contribute. Yes, I can see that point. I know I've interviewed some PhD students and their viewpoint is always absolutely fascinating. It's just... Um, takes you off into another dimension. It's wonderful. Um, but tell me, you had all these authors and all these big ambitions. How did you manage to create an overall theme, a style for the handbook without dictating to your authors? Well, it's because of this ongoing communication between the authors, but also among us and with the broader medieval scholars that actually uh, helped us bridge this constraint. Because it is true that once you give freedom to people to choose what they want to write about, you simply don't know where, where you're heading, right? Uh, we had regular uh, meetings in which we would bring our work and compare it. And then out of these meetings, these comparisons actually yielded quite coherent structure. And if I go back, I think as early as 2016, 17, immediately after the Olomode conference, when we actually had already a self-forming structure coming out of these contributions. So knowing what contributors were writing about definitely helped us come up with coherent structure. Yeah, it's certainly not only a top-down mechanism uh, that that works, but of course authors had to know about the structure, about the length, about which topics, about uh, how much space for the topics, where to put the bibliography, and all the, these kind of things. But it's the outcome of communication, because it's not only top-down, it's also bottom-up. Yeah, So the authors themselves um, suggest something, and then this has an impact on what to communicate then with those who are not so far and who would like to know how to style their, their chapters. But um, there's also some kind of guidelines yeah, that you have to follow. Yeah, So it uh, does not work without them. 
Yes, that, that sounds very, very reasonable. You've both mentioned Central Europe, and I think, Daniel, you mentioned that it had been referred to as the forgotten region. I was wondering, how on earth do you define a region which does not fit into current political boundaries, like Central Europe? And I know you were aiming to look at Central Europe in relation to its surrounding regions. How on earth did you persuade your authors to stick within the region and how did you manage to define the region at all? What is interesting about Central Europe is that it was neither a medieval region nor is it a, a modern one clearly defined. Yeah, so we roughly know what we understand by using the, the term Central Europe. But what is important, I think, is whether defining this region has a heuristic value. So can we see something more by looking at this region? And the interesting aspect is that it was considered as being an annex to center region. Yeah? For example, Holy Roman Empire, and there are these regions east of it. And here we put it in the center. And I think this is a perspective that really brings new new results, unexpected results, and can make you understand aspects where you find coherence, but understand better those aspects where there is no coherence in the region. It is clear that you have to look at the neighboring regions in order to understand. Um, but on the other hand, you find certain aspects, certain um, elements which are specific. And this is, I think, an aspect that you only find out if you really consciously put this region in the center of your research. Yeah, I fully agree with what Daniel said. Um, and we discussed on, on this uh, many times during the preparation of this volume. I would like to say that some authors were quite difficult to accept the notion of Central Europe as we see it namely those coming from national institutes and backgrounds. And usually in those conceptions, it's only medieval Hungary, medieval Bohemia, and medieval Poland. However, uh, once we would put up that we wanted connections of these regions, even those most difficult authors started to see beyond those internal borders. Um, so, yes. Central Europe is our modern term, coined to reflect particular modern political agendas. We cannot get away from this. However, when we pursue perceptions of medieval people that also fail to define Central Europe as a truly different area in comparison to some other parts of the medieval globe, but at the same time within it, also convergences and divergences. We've been talking about the geographical limits, so that the physical limits you're putting on your region of Central Europe. But you're also talking about medieval Central Europe, and that has a time frame on it. And the time frame you state in your book is from 800 to 1600. 
Why 800 to 1600? So usually today, when we talk about medieval history, we really think about boundaries between roughly the year 500 AD and 1500 AD. However, if you try to apply this chronology on the region, it doesn't really work because you will see that certain transformations took place uh, on a much wider chronological scale, going to even the late early medieval period, so really the year 900, uh, the beginning of the new millennium. However, in Central Europe, this is a very formative period, because what we have are uh, migrations, are settlements, some new policies that had never existed before, so that imposed quite natural chronological boundaries. The same is with, with the end chronology as well, because if we follow the advancement of the Ottomans that really caused great upheaval and change in, in the whole region, then it just doesn't make sense to cut everything at 1500, but rather follow this transformation that comes with the Ottomans. And I think many medievalists will also argue that if we follow feudal relations, that still goes on all over the place for quite a long period of time. And the transformation of state apparatuses, the becoming of early modern structures is retarded in comparison to the Mediterranean and other parts of the world. So, yes, I think those years that we took actually much better reflect this historical change that happened. And I think especially what Nana now said is interesting. So by using this beginning and this end, you see also in how far this concept that was developed mainly for the for Western Europe works or doesn't work. Um, I think that you see these issues clearer than than you could see it before. Because some crucial developments like, for example, Christianization um, was a little bit later than, than in Western Europe. So you could start a little bit later, but then, of course, you have to exclude some of the migration processes and so on. But all this you can see if you really start consciously uh, with maybe a concept that was not developed from uh, the material of Central Europe. And for the end, I think it makes sense. You would see, at least in traditional scholarship for Western Europe, a more visible break uh, around 1500 with Reformation and so on. And uh, to extend it to 1600, I think for Central Europe makes sense. However, as Nana already said, many elements, many aspects of uh, especially social history, economic history, they run towards yeah 17th 19th century yeah so uh, but honestly i mean this is also true for western europe yeah so all these periodizations are uh, in the discussion and you can find a lot of arguments in favor as well as against them yes and just to add something else all of these periodizations are really our tools modern tools to search history they were not known to people at the time. And simply, you know, we, we should see them as a kind of technical rather than some kind of fixed chronological boundary. Yes, it's a good point. We don't know really what age we're living in now. 
and maybe in 500 years it won't be called postmodern. It will be called something entirely different. Um, the handbook is clearly academic, particularly as it's Oxford University Press. It's clearly academic, but it's still quite accessible and readable to an educated non-academic like myself. So who is your intended audience for this handbook? Well, our intended audience were clearly academic scholars interested in Central Europe, but lacking in local information, local knowledge. However, the region has recently, I would say in the past 20 years, become a target of interest of people who are not scholars, but sort of people who like to come and explore, like heritage tourists, for instance. And they definitely need an in-depth information uh, that's processed in a very simple way. At the same time, giving them more resources where they should look for further information. So we also had this kind of audience in mind uh, that's more general, but at the same time interested in the region's past. Yeah, and it's clearly a handbook. So it's um, the target group is certainly students. And this, uh, of course, in a global context. Yeah, so since it's English, so therefore I, we would hope that students from all over the world um, who are interested in the region will consult this book. And, and look, what is the state of the art of research? Uh, what are the available sources? And therefore also to make this region and the research of its past more popular. There are other regions which have a certain popularity. Um, I think a good example is medieval England with all its outreach much beyond academia. This is to a certain extent also visible in some parts of Central Europe. So there is an interest, a common interest in medieval history and aspects of medieval life. And here I think we provide a good starting point to deal in academic way with, with this region and uh, to see what happened there and how you can study it. Yes, yes. As a British person, I do take Daniel's point about England and the medieval history of England is uh, probably more well-known than many other places. I don't know why. Yeah, I think one, one reason is, of course, the very rich abundance of sources you have for England. So this is really unique. This is something you don't have for other regions in Europe. And this provides us with much more information. And then the images, yeah, I mean, uh, we have to look at movies, at video games, at all this, which makes the medieval period also as, as something, as a counterworld, yeah, where we can put all our fantasies and all our dreams and wishes into, into a counterworld that um, gives us an escape room from maybe the sometimes not pleasant contemporary times. There is also something else, if I may add, is how we interpret history to the masses, which is already entered the kind of academic discourse, which we don't have really in uh, some other parts. 
And that brings me nicely on to what will have to be my final question. And I would actually like to look at the final chapter of the handbook. The chapter looks at many of the myths which are now popular uh, and current about the medieval world of Central Europe, such as the number of water wells that sprang into being where King Radislav of Hungary struck the stone with his sword. People still know these myths, or maybe they've been recreated. And there was definitely a trend in the 19th, early 20th century to celebrate big national anniversaries, often millennium. These thoughts bring me to the use and current abuse of popular vision of the Middle Ages. Now, do you think historians should aim to refute the myths and promote a more truthful version of the past, however prosaic and perhaps rather dull it might be? Or should historians ride on the popular image and interest to gain the increased audience? So we certainly shouldn't use the increased images created for popular audiences to promote our work. However, we certainly need to keep in mind the responsibility of historians to interpret history. And also we need to be aware of not just our standpoints, but modern perspectives through which history is being interpreted. Uh, and having said that, we also need to be aware of modern agendas that use and, as you say, abuse history. And uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in the modern past, there have been recently situations when historians were silent or participated and enhanced uh, various abuses. Yeah, our task as historians also to present a correct picture. Yeah, so at, as far as it is possible, yes. Yeah, but um, of course, to rectify distorted images, distorted pictures, also um, to prevent abusing the past for contemporary political goals, moving frontiers, and and these kind of things. Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic concerning popular waves of medieval, the medieval world, because I think we depend on popularity of this period, and this is closely connected to, to images, the image of knighthood, the image of maybe certain values. This is less important for contemporary historians or for 20th century because they say, okay, these horrible things that happened there, they shape our societies in a, in a very obvious way. So, of course, we need them. But the pre-modern periods, they are always challenged by uh, this question of usefulness and so on. So, therefore, we have, I think, to use all the means that make our period uh, popular. And this it might also be images conveyed by computer games and, and they might yeah. provoke interest. Okay, how was it really? Yeah, I see the movie, yeah, but and I'm fascinated by it, but how did they really live? Okay, and then it starts, hopefully. On the other hand, when you see the Game of Thrones, what's medieval history there at all apart from the landscape and 
walls. So how do you educate those people who really assume that this was medieval history indeed? Uh, yeah. Yes, those are interesting points. How do we communicate a more realistic version while riding on the back of Hollywood and all the computer games? It's one of the challenges of modern scholarship. And I think it's one of the probably the more exciting challenges, bringing scholarship right up to date and finding how useful it is. And sadly, on that interesting point, we must end this conversation as we've run out of time. Nada, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing the handbook with us. It's been an amazing conversation to hear the story of a book. Thank you very much, Karen, for having us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for your motivating questions. Today I've been talking to Nada Sejcevic and Daniel Zeman about their roles as joint editor for the Oxford Handbook of Medieval Central Europe, published in 2022 by the Oxford University Press. My thanks to everyone for listening, and I hope you found this conversation as interesting, enjoyable and thought-provoking as I did. Please do look out for the next MISEM podcast in which MISEM members talk about their recent or current research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing and you think other members would find interesting, please do contact me through the MISEM board or website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISEM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Mm-hmm.